Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 17, if you will. And the title of my message this morning is, My Banner. One of the many names of God in the Old Testament, describing His character, describing what He has done on behalf of His people, the children of Israel, giving us an idea of who God is and and His uh, thoughts towards us as those who would follow Him in Christ. But we begin our time together this morning, and I ask this question as we begin. When you first became a Christian, do you remember that day? Do you remember that day that that new life was birthed in you? And there was a new joy, and there was a new peace, and you felt clean for the very first time. You knew because you had placed your faith and trust in Christ that now you were right before God, your sins had been dealt with, you have felt forgiveness for the very, possibly the very first time in your life, and it felt like nothing would ever dampen the newness of that relationship that you had just entered into. And then as time went on, you discovered that along with those uh, wonderful aspects, the aspects of joy and hope and the love and the mercy and the grace that you experienced, you also discovered that this new life in Jesus Christ offered you and introduced you to new battles that you didn't necessarily expect that you would find yourself within. Battles on the inside... Uh, Battles between the old life and the new life. As the Bible calls it, the flesh and the spirit. Battles from without, from without, through uh, the enticement of the things in this world and the temptations that they offer and draw you into. And you started to discover that the more you grew in Christ, the more Christ drew you closer to Him in sanctification, the more you became Christ-like, the more difficult the battles became. To the point where you almost feel as if you are taking one step forward and two steps back. Those battles are a natural component of your Christian life. In fact, if you aren't experiencing those battles, I I would be more concerned about that. Because those battles are real. They are part of the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. They're real. They're very real. It shows that there's a dual nature in you, the flesh and the spirit. It shows that the things that are in the world, the lusts of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life are real and are being used by our adversary, the devil, to draw us in away from God through temptation and sin. Those battles are real and sometimes as days go on, you become tired and weak. And some of you may be saying, yeah, I'm right there. I'm trying to do the right thing. But the battle seems to be growing ever so intensive. Victory seems so far from you that you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. It doesn't seem to be anywhere in the near future. Today I want you to know that the Lord is our banner. Our standard, the one who goes before us to fight the battles that we are engaged within. And those battles include the one that is within us. 
Those battles include our engagement with the world. It is the Lord who goes before us in such manners. He is our banner. As we will discover, the children of Israel find themselves in the wilderness. And they find themselves locked in an engaged conflict, the very first one that they have personally had to deal with, personally themselves. And in this they discover that it is the Lord that goes before them and fights for them and defeats their enemies in front of them. We need to know that in our walk with the Lord, as the battle begins to rage, it is the Lord in whom we need to depend upon each and every day to see us through. One of the worst mistakes that we can make is try to, as believers in Christ, rectify our flesh, engage and withstand temptation through the power of our flesh, our old nature. This is one of the faulty under, uh, aspects of self-help. This is a concept that has been introduced and adopted in our culture to try to rectify significant, serious problems within the person's life, bondages, etc. But that process is only as good as the strength of the individual trying to live it out. The moment that they are incapable of doing so is the moment that they fail. I believe that real change happens in a person's life, happens in a Christian's life, when the Spirit conducts the change in, uh, within that person and then through that person. It is God who is working in you. Each and every one of us is a work in progress. And God is moving us, drawing us ever so close to the Lord, bringing us by the Spirit of God into that conformity into the image of Christ, and therefore taking us away from the world and drawing us into a closer, deep relationship with the Lord. Today, unfortunately, many Christians have the attitude of, how close can I get to this so-called line with the world and still be okay with God. And and, and it kind of manifests itself in this way. Well, uh, how much physical contact can my girlfriend and I have before it is sin? Red flag to me. When they're asking that question, it's already a red flag. Because they are looking to see how close they can get before it is sin. Before a couple is married, they should not even drive in the same car together. Now you know how my, what my daughter thinks about me. Holding hands as a couple who, is, who are dating is an abomination unto God. I have to say these things because my daughter is listening. I think we need to be very careful in these arenas. You know why? Because everything starts slowly. Everything starts slowly. We have example of example of example of this in the Bible. And I am saying those things tongue-in-cheek, but understand where I'm coming from. If you're not in the same car, you're not going to sin. If you go to the theater uh, and you sit uh, with one chair in between you, you're not going to sin. If her mom is in the back seat of the car with you, you're not going to sin. We should not be looking to see how close we get to that line, that fictitious line of the world. We should see how far we can get from it in the person of Jesus Christ and glorify Him in everything that we do. 
But as you know, and as I know, the flesh is real. And we have an internal battle. The spirit warring against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. We have an external battle where Satan uses the things of this world to draw us in and to entice us. The battle is real. But today I tell you that the Lord is our banner. He is our standard. He is the one that goes before us. It is him and who we have to rely on at those moments for victory in our new life with him. In one of my devotions, I read this and I'd like to read it to you. It was one of uh, Dr. David Jeremiah's devotionals, but he was actually quoting K. Arthur. Are there days in your life when you feel utterly defeated, outnumbered, outflanked, and outgunned? Do you feel overwhelmed and overcome by yearnings of the flesh that run counter to God's word and his desires and plan for you? Where do you turn, beloved? Where do you find the strength and will stand to fast and keep fighting the good fight? Where do you look to for help when the enemy comes in like a flood? Turn to Jehovah Nisi for your deliverance, the Lord my banner. Let your heart thrill at the victory that is ours in him. A banner is an ancient, in ancient times was an ensign or a standard carried at the head of a military grouping. It became a rallying point in a time of war. Often it was a bare pole topped with a bright ornament and caught the light of the sun. In times of battle, soldiers would look across the confusion and chaos of the battlefield for a glimpse of their king's banner. As long as the shining ensign was held high, they would fight with courage and confidence. God is that banner to you and I. He sees the war raging against you and is your eternal source of hope and confidence. In times of stress and pressure, take courage. Look for God's standard moving out in front of you. The victory is yours in Him as you trust Him. Let's take a look at our text this morning as we now pick it up in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Ramaphin. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary or heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. 
saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, or, as the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Again, we join the children of Israel in the wilderness as they're making their way to the land in which God has promised to them. And as they are making their way through the wilderness, they are sieged upon by Amalek. Now, please, though our text only tells us that there is one person, please don't get the mindset that just some crazy homeless guy came running out of the mountains with a sword and attacked four million children of Israel. Amalek was, of course, the head of the Amalekites, and it was a, it was a descendant of Esau. And they were very antagonistic towards the children of Israel. They became the arch enemy of Israel. If you see it through the New Testament, I mean, the Old Testament, you will discover that they were always harassing the children of Israel. And they were cruel. They were relentless. They were ruthless to the people of God. In fact, in Deuteronomy, it tells us that they were so ruthless that they were actually memorialized for their ruthless towards the children of God. Remember when Amalek, uh, what he did to you on the way that you were coming out of Egypt? Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks and all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary. And he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies all around in the land in which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you will, uh, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. The Amalekites knew that the most vulnerable aspect of any large caravan was the rear of it. For at the rear would be all of those who were older and weak and could not keep up pace with those who were younger. It would be where mothers were carrying children. It would be the place where those who may have infirmities or, or um, need, you know, special needs that wouldn't allow them to move as fastly or as quickly with the others. It is those people that the Amalekites targeted and began to slaughter. And God took that personally. God saw the cowardness of the Amalekites in that action. And as a result, to this day, the Amalekites no longer exist. No one knows an Amalekite because he has remembered and has blotted their name out from under heaven. So they have an enemy. Number two, we discover that they have to fight this battle for themselves. You know, when they came to the edge of the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was bearing down upon them, it was God who dealt with the Egyptian military. It was him who covered them in the, uh, in the Red Sea itself as they tried to make their way through to pursue the children of Israel. It was God who covered them in the Red Sea and annihilated the military arm of Egypt in that one act. But here, this time, Israel had to go out themselves. Joshua, go and gather some men, and you go out into the valley and meet the Amalekites head on. Though they were to carry out the campaign, it would be through the Lord that they gained the victory. 
For notice that as Joshua headed below, Moses headed above. He went to the top of the hill overlooking the valley, and by faith he took the rod that had delivered them in the past and simply raised it as he did at the edge of the Red Sea. And at the moment he did so, Joshua began to prevail over the Amalekites. But the moment he grew tired and weary, his arms began to get heavy, and the rod began to move downward, and Amalek would prevail. But then we discovered that as Moses grew tired, there were two who were with him, Aaron and Hur. Aaron, his brother, and Hur, we find... uh, Throughout the, New, the Old Testament, there is, that's a common name, so there are many hers mentioned. But this one was with them on the mountain, and when Moses grew tired, they knew enough to steady his hands, one on each side, that when he himself could not hold it, they held him as he held the rod. They even gave him a stone to sit upon as he grew tired. And they did so until sundown, and Joshua prevailed and overwhelmed and defeated the Amalekites. Then God goes to memorialize this by telling Moses, write it all down in a memorial, say it in the hearing of Joshua. Now, I'm not sure if Joshua did not know that Moses was on top of the hill doing what he was doing and and known that what had occurred, or if It was simply to remind Joshua that the Lord had pronounced judgment upon the Amalekites and that was to be carried out in the future. But either way, it was meant to be memorialized, meaning it's something for us to take notice of. It was something that he wanted the children of Israel never to forget. And so he built an altar and called that altar, The Lord is my banner. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner, my standard, the one who goes out in before us and fights for us. As the Jewish Tanakh reads, and that is the Hebrew Bible in English, as Moses built an altar and named it Adonai Nisi, he said it means hand upon the throne of the Lord, which is another way of saying the Lord swears or has sworn upon The Lord will be at war with Amalek throughout the ages. One commentator wrote this, Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. One of God's names is Jehovah Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. It commemorates the first battle Israel won after they had come out of Egypt If we only would remember what the Lord has done for us in the past, it would encourage us to put our trust in Him today. Sometimes we have to say with that uh, distraught father of the New Testament found in Mark 9, Lord, I believe, but yet help me with my unbelief. Remembering Jesus even honored that man's prayer. We are to remember the moments in which God worked miraculously, powerfully, supernaturally in our lives. We are to remember those times so when we come across times going forward in the future, 
that it may even be more difficult than those that we have experienced in the past, let us rest upon knowing what God had done then to trust God at that moment in our current situation. And throughout the Old Testament, there are numerous occasions where God has been named for what He has promised, for what He has done. Genesis 22, the Lord will provide, in speaking of the provision of a sacrifice rather than Isaac being sacrificed. Or the Lord who heals, Exodus 15. The Lord is peace, Judges 6.24. The Lord our righteousness, Jeremiah 23.6. The Lord is there, Ezekiel 48.35. We are to remember these moments. We are to remember those moments in which God provided miraculously so the next time we find ourselves in need, we can trust Him. We must remember those moments that we were surrounded by circumstances that caused great fear and the Lord saw us through that fear. So the next time we face fear, we can trust Him at that moment. Let us remember the circumstances that God has seen us through that were memorialized in the Old Testament for the children of Israel to remember within these names. God has worked equally in your life. He has done miraculous things. Don't forget those times. Build upon those times. It is those times that's going to steady you at your moment of need currently, today, or in the future. As one wrote, he said, Let us meditate upon the Lord's holy name, that we may trust Him the better and rejoice the more readily. He is in character, holy, just, true, gracious, faithful, and unchanging. Is not such a God to be trusted? He is all-wise, almighty, and everywhere present. Cannot, can we not cheerfully rely upon Him? Yes, we will do so at once, and do so without reserve. Jehovah Jireh, my God will provide. Jehovah Shalom, my God will send peace. Jehovah Kaniskatu, my God shall justify. Jehovah Shammah, my God will be forever near. And Jehovah Nisi, my God will conquer every foe. That they know thy name will trust thee, and that that trust in thee will rejoice in thee, O Lord, Charles Spurgeon. That is what we are to do. We are to remember the times in which God has worked, in Scripture and in our life. Now there's many things that I want you to consider this morning, and this is where we're going to look at the New Testament this morning to help you in this manner of these new battles that you might find yourself within. In Exodus chapter 17, we discovered in verses 1 through 7 that contention arose out of the children of Israel towards Moses and God. The inward struggle, the difficulties that were created inwardly amongst the people. We have inward struggles today, and that inward struggle is the flesh and the spirit roaring against each other. And then the moment that the inward was settled, the outward took place, the Amalekites. And this time they had to fight for themselves, which meant risk and reward meaning that some would lose their life within the battle, and yet God saw them through to the end. We have an adversary. Let us never forget that we have an adversary. 
One of the greatest weapons that we give the adversary as Christians today is the idea that he doesn't exist or we are indifferent to him. I'm often asked, do I believe in a literal devil, a literal Satan? I said, I have to, because I believe in a literal God. And I believe in his word that tells me clearly that Satan exists. And concerning Satan, we find that he goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may destroy. So I have to take him real. I have to take him seriously as a Christian. But what about the battle that rages within us? It's a very real battle, isn't it? And that battle is articulated for us in Galatians chapter 5. Turn there with me in your Bibles, if you will. Galatians chapter 5. And in this battle within ourselves, between the flesh and the spirit, this war continuously moving us and leading us and reminding us that it is there, listen to what Paul has to say. But I say, walk in the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposite to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So let us know that this contention that rages within us is a contention that we will deal with until the day that we are perfected and before the presence of God. It is a reality of the Christian life. So if you are experiencing it, you didn't really know what it was all about, Now you know that this new sensitivity that we call conviction that is birthed within you the moment you become a follower of Jesus Christ and the Spirit resides in you, you know that that is a natural component of your Christian life. It's a warning to you. It's a reminder to you to stay away from sin and to draw ever so closer to God. Conviction always drives us to God. But often that conviction is misunderstood and Christians interpret it as condemnation. God does not use condemnation in the life of the believer. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. But let us understand that God does use conviction. And that's part of the methodology in which he works within our lives to bring about change because he loves you too much to leave you the way he found you. And as he's sanctifying us and as he's reminding us and sometimes even as he's chastening us as a loving father would correct his son or daughter, he does so through conviction. It's kind of that, well if I can put it in a very theological manner, it's kind of like the spidey sense that Spider-Man has. Things start tingling. It's a warning. You know that you're getting too close. Your conscience is screaming, stop, don't go any farther. This is wrong. You don't want to engage in this. You don't want to do this. I remember when I got saved and I remember going to my pastor with these concerns and telling him, you know, all the things I used to have so much fun doing, now they're, they're all like kryptonite. I don't want to get near any of them. I, I don't feel like the, any of them are right before God. And he says they're not, so stop doing them. That was his advice. Live full on for God. 
Now here's the danger. As conviction works within our conscience through the Spirit of God, that conviction can be seared as if we do not obey it. And once we proceed into sin the first time, it's easier to do it the second time. So we must be very careful to allow that sensitivity in our hearts to remain to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will never lead you wrong. He will never lead you into places that would cause you to sin. This war that is within us. Verse 18, notice, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh, if you have any question of what the flesh wants to do, here is a list that you can uh, evaluate your actions by to know if they are of the flesh or of the Spirit. They're evident. They're very clearly marked for all sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, revelries, dissension, divisions, envy and drunkenness and orgies and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are not characteristic behaviors of a Christian. I'm very concerned when someone makes a profession of faith and maybe is even baptized, and yet there is never change in their life. And they go back living the old life without any kind of conviction, without any kind of concern. They are indifferent to those things. I have to ask the question if they are truly even saved because such a one cannot and should not continue in such things. It's interesting because idolatry is mentioned there and I was wondering if if our light turnout today was because we had touched on idolatry last week and maybe they thought we were going to touch it more this week. Not a popular subject today. But notice here, Paul says that those who practice such things, those who do, but the fruit of the Spirit. Now here is where you know the Spirit is working. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such of these there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So here's what I would like you to know. I would like you to know that as we as believers in Jesus Christ live out our Christian faith, know that to overcome the flesh, we must not engage the flesh with the flesh. If you want to overcome the flesh in your life and those areas that seem to be insurmountable in your personal life, those areas of sin that you just, you've hidden in the closet, you don't want to deal with them because they're just so big. Here's how to deal with them this morning. Walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Before we can deal with our flesh, first and foremost, we must be a Christian in Christ. We must be a Christian in Christ, number one, because we need the Holy Spirit to do the work. We cannot do it ourselves. Number two, realize that your old life, the old man, as the Bible calls it, is dead. And you no longer need to be subjected to it. You don't have to obey its commands any longer. You can choose to live full on for Jesus Christ because He has given you the Spirit of God to do so. And your old life has 
been dealt with. When individuals come to me and say, Pastor, I'm struggling so desperately in an area of my life, I always say the same thing to them. I always encourage them in the same manner. Do not try to fight the flesh with the flesh. If you want to overcome the flesh, feed the Spirit. Of, feed the Spirit. Be in the Word of God daily. Be on your knees in prayer and fasting. Get as close to God as you possibly can. For the Word of God washes us. It cleanses us. And after 28 years of walking with the Lord and being in His Word, I will tell you that there are aspects of my old life that I thankfully have forgotten. Because God truly makes all things new in the life of the believer. We are new creations in Christ. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? What does it mean to walk with the Spirit? It simply means to live in the Spirit. That when you face temptation, when your flesh wants to take you in a certain direction, this is where this is very apropos, this saying. Just say no. (laughs) And rely on the Spirit of God to give you the strength to overcome those things. Being obedient to God is not legalism. It is mandatory. It is mandatory for us who are in Christ Jesus. We do so out of a heart of love because we are to love Him with all of our heart, soul, minds, and strength. Our whole body is subjected to obedience to Christ because of our love for Him. That's why I obey God. I love Him. I obey God because He's given me new life. He saw this wretch and reached down out of heaven and saved a person like me gave me new life. And not only did he give me new life, everything that I have today is a result of him. How can I not allow my life to glorify him in the wake of all that he has done on my behalf? Listen to what one commentator says. As a believer walks through life, he should depend on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for guidance and power. But the Spirit does not operate automatically in a believer's heart. He waits to be depended upon. When a Christian does yield to the Spirit's control, the promise is that he will not in any way. The double negative is used here in the Greek to demonstrate. It's an emphatic, meaning there's no way that these things are going to happen if you submit yourself unto the Spirit to gratify or to fulfill the desires of the sinful nature. Thus, while no believer will ever be eternally free in this life from the evil desires that stem from the fallen human nature, he needs not capitulate to them, but may experience victory by the Spirit's help within his life. Now, that battle is significant in and of itself, but what about the battle that's exterior? As the enemy, the adversary that we have roams as a lion seeking whom whom he may destroy. What do we do about that? Because Peter warns us, he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Okay, that gets my attention. Jesus said, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. How do we stand in such a way? Paul dedicates the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians and tells us how we can stand against such an adversary. 
And it isn't anything that we do within our life. It is us standing in the Holy Spirit. For Paul instructs us in Ephesians chapter 6, the next book over from Galatians, to put on the whole armor of God. To clothe ourselves each and every day in such a way that we may stand against the wiles of the devil, against the wicked one himself, and doing all to stand. Frankly, and I hope nobody finds this offensive, there are too many Christians going out of the house naked. We need to clothe ourselves each and every day in such a manner to be able to contend with what we will face within the battle that we are engaged upon. Look with me in verse 10 of chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil that are in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as the shoes uh, for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith in which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And then take the helmet of salvation. That's an interesting one. One of the areas that Satan often tries to gain ground over is causing us to doubt our salvation in Jesus Christ. There are many who doubt their salvation. There are many who question, am I even saved? At times of great discouragement, at times when you're in a place of despair, it is easy to question such a thing. And as he goes on, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Now, praying at all times, in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all preservation, making supplication for all the saints. And as for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul did not take such time to write such things if they weren't important. We don't have time to look at every aspect of the whole armor of God this morning, but you can look at it for yourself. And know that these things are required because it makes it clear that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and the ruler of this world, Satan himself. That is where we do our battle. Now, how does Satan work? Well, in actuality, Satan is a master of lies. He's a great deceiver. But his one weapon in which he seems to use at the most critical moments of time, and those most critical moments of time came at the creation of all things with Adam and Eve, and he approached Eve in a very specific manner. Another time where things were key critical was, of course, when Jesus Christ was born. And came and walked as a man here on this earth. God incarnate here on this earth. And in both cases, in such key critical times, Satan used the one arrow in his sheath. I'm sorry, that's not a sheath is for a sword. Uh, his arrow pouch. I don't know what it is off the top of my head. But the point is, it seems like he used the same tactics. And the tactics is temptation. 
He came at Eve with temptation, twisting the word of God, manipulating her, moving her, causing her to consider what he is saying rather than what God has said. Now notice it's the same tactic with Jesus. Satan came and using the word of God, having to the desire of Christ leaning upon his rendering of the word of God, but Christ, being the author of the word himself, knew the word perfectly and therefore was able to counter the temptation of the devil. So understand, often, temptation comes in the form towards you and I when Satan asks us to reconsider God's word. Did God really say such a thing? Maybe you're faced with a temptation that you know the scriptures clearly denounces. It's at that moment that you are faced with that temptation and you are lured by the lust and the desires of your flesh to enter into that sin that Satan has a tendency to question or to cause you to question God's word. Did God really say? Here's one that I always get thrown into my face. Couples, and I'll be honest, they're usually older, they're dating, they may have come from previous marriages, and now they are Christians, they are older, they start dating, maybe possibly getting engaged, who feel that it's perfectly acceptable before God because they love each other, and because that they are older and had been married previously, it's okay for them to live together and, and engage in sexual activity. Where did you get that rationale? Where's the exemption clause? Flee from sexual immorality unless you've been married once and are over the age of 45 and really love each other. Is that the new twisted version of the Bible? But that's the way people reason things through. And they begin to engage in activity that is inappropriate as a, for a Christian to do so because they themselves know the word, they read the word, but somehow, some way, they have justified in their own minds that the word doesn't really say what it means to say to them. Temptation. And of course, Satan uses all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of, of the flesh, and the pride of life to draw us into temptation as he did with Eve. But we have this promise, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except that it is common to man, meaning there isn't anything unique. Man is tempted basically in the same way, in the, in, in the same areas of weakness. And no, just like the Amalekites, Satan will always target those areas that you are weakest within. Now, you may have said, I don't know if I've ever really identified which areas of my life I'm weakest in. Often, often those areas we have categorized as, I don't think that'll be a problem in my life going forward. Often it's those areas that we are actually the most vulnerable within. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So no, we have the battle on the inside, we have the battle on the outside, and in the same manner as the children of Israel, the Lord is my banner, he goes before us, and here is where we get to the most exciting part of the message. 
Do you realize that the one in whom we are in, Christ himself, is greater than Moses? And Moses demonstrated his limitations by growing weary and weak and needing others to support his arms at that moment. But you and I, we have a high priest in Jesus Christ who never wearies, who never grows tired, who is omnipotent. He can do anything. He is greater than Moses himself. The Hebrew writer says this over and over again in chapters 3 and in chapter 7 of Hebrews. Christ is greater. In fact, if you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. I'd like to read these verses to you. They are so encouraging to me. For the former priests were many in numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, that is Christ, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is greater than anything that preceded him. As he intercedes for you and I, let us understand. And if we, are to, if we do enter temptation and we do stumble and fall, First John calls Christ our great advocate. And when the accuser goes before the Father and accuses us, rightfully so, of our, our, our sin before God, our, our lack of holiness, it is Christ who stands between us and the Father. It is Christ who becomes our advocate at that moment. He is the one fighting the battle, inwardly through the Spirit, outwardly through the Spirit and through His intercession in heaven. It is Christ who goes before us, our great Redeemer our great high priest who will never grow tired who will never grow weary that should certainly encourage you this morning but know that he is your banner and it must be personalized it must be realized because the word says my banner my banner he is my standard and if it's inwardly I, I will overcome the flesh by the spirit of God if it's outwardly, I will let Christ go before me because he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. I'd like to close with this this morning. In every believer's heart, there is a constant struggle between the old nature and the new. The old nature is very active and loses no opportunity of playing all the weapons of its deadly armory against the newborn grace. Well, on the other hand, the new nature is even ever on watch to resist and to destroy its enemy. Grace within us will empower, employ prayer, I should say, and faith and hope and love and to cast out the evil. It takes onto us the whole armor of God and we wrestle earnestly in it and through it. These two opposing natures will never cease to struggle so long as we are in this world. The enemy is so secretly and securely uh, entrenched within us that he can never be driven out while we are in this body. But although we are closely beset and often in sore conflict, we have an almighty helper, 
Even Jesus, the captain of our salvation, who is ever with us, who assures us that we will eventually come off more than conquerors through him. With such assistance, the newborn nature is more than a match for its foes. Are you fighting with the adversary today? Are Satan, the world, and the flesh all against you? Do not be discouraged or dismayed, but fight on. For God himself is with you. Jehovah Nisi is your banner. And Jehovah Rophi is your healer of the wounds that may have occurred previously. Fear not, for you shall overcome. For who can defeat an omnipotent God? Fight on, look unto Jesus. And though long and stern be the conflict, sweet will be the victory and glorious the promised reward. C.H. Spurgeon.